Before we start this episode of Judaism Unbound, we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll love, the Jewish Lives Podcast. It's a monthly show about influential Jews from antiquity to the present through the lens of Yale's prize-winning Jewish Lives biography series. Wander through the desert with Moses, overcome stage fright with Barbara Streisand, roam the tough streets of Brooklyn with Bugsy Siegel, stage a protest with Emma Goldman, explore a chapter of the Jewish experience in each episode. You can find the Jewish Lives podcast at www.jewishlives, with an S, jewishlives.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more. Friends of Judaism Unbound, save 25% and get free shipping at jewishlives.org. Just use the code PODCAST25 at checkout, only at jewishlives.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 264, Karaites. Bible only, please. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And our guest today, Sean Leisha, is someone that we've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, but we were trying to figure out the right place. And when we realized that we were starting this series on the Bible, we thought this is the right place to have a discussion with somebody who is a leading voice within the Karaite community. That's a group of Jews that basically doesn't accept one of the key pillars of rabbinic Judaism, which is that at Mount Sinai, when Moses was given what we call the Torah by God, the written Torah, Moses was also given an oral Torah at the same time by God. And that oral Torah was preserved for hundreds and hundreds of years until some period after the destruction of the Second Temple, when it was written down initially as the Mishnah, and then over time in additional ways as what we call the Talmud. And the Karaites represent a group of Jews that didn't believe that there was an oral tradition given at Mount Sinai that was of basically equal magnitude as the written Torah in the Bible. That the written Torah, the written Bible, has a much more significant or perhaps I should say supreme significance in what we understand Judaism to be, what we understand God to want of the Jews, etc. The percentage of Jews that are Karaites has waxed and waned over the course of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. It was much, much bigger in the Middle Ages. And of course, here in America, when we talk about the various groups of Jews that there are, people think about, you know, the denominations, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, Renewal, but often don't really think about Karaites, largely because it's a small community here in America. And our guest today is working to preserve its traditions and make them available for study or consideration more widely. We're really excited to have this conversation today with Sean Leisha, who is a leading voice in the Karaite community. He is a board member of the Karaite Jews of America and founder of the Karaite Press. In the Karaite Press self-description, they say, Our mission is simple. When Karaite literature ceased to be commonly available, the Jewish world lost a tremendous amount of scholarship, exegesis, and diversity. Students of Jewish theology and history lost access to a rich heritage. And Karaites themselves were no longer the masters of their own intellectual heritage. The Karaite Press aims to change all this, and they publish a combination of translations of older Karaite literature, as well as more contemporary writings. Sean Leisha himself is the founder of A Blue Thread, a Jewish blog with a thread of Karaite throughout, and he speaks widely about Karaite Judaism at venues across America, including synagogues, Jewish day schools, the Library of Congress, the Association of Jewish Libraries, and now Judaism Unbound. So Sean Leisha, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Excited to be here. 
We're excited to have this conversation. We've been talking about the Bible in this series, and it's interesting to now move from talking about the Bible to, well, what do people do with the Bible? So I, I think that some of us have a very unsophisticated understanding of charism, and some of us have an extremely unsophisticated understanding of charism. <laughs> so uh, I would say that the thing that I know is basically, that, that I think is, is worth saying, because I think people might say it's a strange sounding word, that actually in Hebrew or Aramaic, like Korah means to read. So it, it's, a, it's also a way of talking about the Torah. So that, so my understanding is that it's people who really don't believe that the Judaism that emerges from the time after the Bible is is accurate, you know, and, and so really what we should be doing is going back to the Bible. So now take me more sophisticated than that. There is Judaism after the Bible, and that Judaism is correct. Now, the question is, like, what does is and what does correct mean? Uh, maybe I'd give you, like, one nuance to what you said, but it's a massive paradigm shift. In what most people think about Judaism, there is a written law and there is an oral law, right? So God, according to this form of Judaism, gave the written Torah and an oral Torah explaining it. Karaite Judaism does not believe that God gave an oral law. Karaite Judaism believes God gave a written Torah and that's what the Karaites follow. Now, we also have the entire Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, uh, and we use that as a source of our laws and understanding biblical times and biblical precedent. But we definitely believe that, Bible, that there is a Judaism after the Tanakh, after the Bible closes. And let's talk about what that means every day for everybody. When did this split happen or did it happen multiple times between those who believe that, the, that there is an oral law and that there isn't? So look, from a theological perspective, right, so like we Karaites would say there was never an oral law and the oral, the people who decided to follow the oral law broke off away from what Karaites would say was true, and I use these words very loosely, true historical Israelitism or Judaism. But definitely in the Second Temple, you see lots of different Jewish groups. In the Middle Ages, the Issaites, the Mishawites, the Ananites, the Karaites, the Yugdanites. Uh, all these different Jewish movements in all these different places and all these different times. So yes, I think the answer to your question is that there are many different times where Judaism came apart, came back together, came apart, came back together. And maybe I should rephrase that and say, instead of saying where Judaism came apart and came back together, but maybe the people who ascribe to Judaism have different views that sometimes are more divergent from each other or sometimes came closer to each other. So I really want to sit with what you said to start that, which is, from a Karaite perspective, the Rabbinites, we haven't used that word yet, but the Rabbinites branched off and followed a new oral law that had, that, you know, was not from a Karaite perspective, sort of from the divine. And I, and I want to sit with that because I think there's such a deep way in which even those of us who aren't like Orthodox Rabbinite Jews, we've, we've sort of soaked into us that like, ah, Judaism, sort of the Judaism, accepts this idea of an oral tradition, you know, Talmud. That's sort of, there's, even for people who don't go to synagogue very much, they might not know what Talmud is in a deep way, but like, there's that original document, and then there's all these things later that, you know, eventually are written, but the idea is they're circulating around as oral teachings, and they sort of are given this status that's maybe a slight bit lower than that written document, but in, in many ways, 
equal to that original document. And sometimes we would even argue as Judaism Unbound, like the newer stuff kind of replaces the the Torah. There's ways in which there are correctives made from a rabbinic perspective in those Talmud texts, in other texts that sort of change what the Torah or other biblical texts are saying. This word rabbinite is not a word I had ever heard until I met you. But like, I'd love for you to talk about like, there's a term rabbinite that exists once you back out and say, ah, there are other kinds of Judaism. It's almost like we've had conversations with people where like the phrase white Jew comes up. Like, if you think all Jews are white, it's a silly thing to say white Jews, right? It only makes sense when white Jews is a, a subsection of a broader group of Jews. Similarly, the term rabbinite only makes sense when you recognize there are other kinds of Jews, like Karaite. So I'd love to hear from you, Sean, like, what is it to sort of inhabit a Judaism that people don't even know is a Judaism? That like is is so fundamentally erased that like the terminology that we have is built around its unexistence. When you zoom out and you think Judaism, and then you kind of say, "Oh, wait a minute, what's what is a rabbinite? A rabbinite Jew is somebody who follows the rabbinic tradition. So Karaites are are Jews who follow the Karaitic or the Karaite tradition. Uh, in this case, it's a Bible-based and not Talmud-based tradition." Rabbinite Jews follow the rabbinic tradition. So that includes the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible, and all of the rabbinic literature. Now, you mentioned this question about like never having to think about what it means to be a rabbinite. You know, in 1979, in Hadassah Magazine's Jewish Traveler section, a rabbi, his name is Rabbi Baruch Hellman, he traveled to Cairo, Egypt, and he was studying Arabic in Cairo, Egypt. Now, I'm going to put a little bit of a, a note here and tell you, my family comes from the Karaite Jewish community of Cairo. So back to this rabbi, he's, he's traveling to uh, Cairo and he's there and he's learning Arabic. And he is telling his Muslim Arabic teacher, I cannot come to class on Shabbat because I'm an observant Jew and I, I won't be here. Okay? The Muslim teacher asks in a very comforting, friendly voice, basically, what kind of Jew are you? Are you a Karite or a rabbinite? And this rabbi tells us that that's the first time he ever had to identify as a rabbinite. <laughs> And the truth is that unless you were living in Egypt in the last century, there's probably no other place in the world where the Karaites were prominent enough where somebody would have to say, are you a Karaite or Rabbanite? No one has to confront their own identity until you realize that there's somebody who's different from you. And then you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, if they are seeing the world this way and they're calling themselves Karaites, what does that make me? And in this case, it, it makes people who follow the rabbinic tradition Rabbanites. I think for all of us, maybe not all, but for most of us, we can think of that moment, if we've heard the word Karaite at all, right, or if we've interacted with Karaites at all, that first moment feels significant because it cracks something open where it's like, oh, my rabbinic way, it's not just that's Judaism, like that's one way. So let's let's make it more specific. Like let's talk about some actual examples when we look at Torah or when we look at Jewish traditions, how Karaites and, and Rabbinites do things differently. And I'll kind of open with one, and then I'd love for you to bring in whatever others you think will help. So I love to talk about holidays. One of the core pieces of how I think Jews relate to making meaning in the world is through the calendar of holidays. Ask most Jews alive today, when is the Jewish New Year? And I think you will hear as a response, 
Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah means, you know, head of the year or the new year in a sense. Karaites don't think that. Karaites have a different sense of when the year turns a page, and that's the first of Nisan. And I would argue there's very good reasons for that. Um, by the way, you might also get a deep answer from somebody who says there's four new years, drawing from the Talmud. But more often, I think you'll hear the first day of Tishrei, the Rosh Hashanah. Um, there is no thing called Rosh Hashanah from a traditional kind of Karaite lens, because that phrase does not exist in the Hebrew Bible. So I'd love to open up, like, maybe on that Rosh Hashanah example, but maybe more generally, like, what are some other examples of how, in some fundamental ways, what a Karaite Jew's Jewish life looks like and flows like is different from the things we think are just normative and universal from a rabbinite perspective? Love that. So you, you mentioned Rosh Hashanah, and this was actually one of the great Karaite awakening moments of my life. I remember I was in undergrad. Now, I, should, I just want to say, I was born within the Karaite tradition. I went to Karaite services. My, as is a custom in many historical Jewish cultures, my father sat me down and taught me the Karaite basics and the prayers. I would say, by the way, just as an aside, here in the United States, there's definitely much more women doing educating and teaching than there were historically in the Karaite community. But in, in my case, my father taught me. Uh, I, I go to college, but I, by the way, I, I did my, my traditional Jewish education, though, at a conservative synagogue. You know, I went to Sunday in Hebrew school at a conservative synagogue. You know, I heard about Rosh Hashanah. I heard about Tefillin. We'll talk about that. I heard about Mrs. Oz. We could talk about that when we talk about Tefillin. I heard about the Shofar. We could talk about that, too. So anyway, I go to college and I learned, I joined some online Karaite forum. It was Yahoo groups back in the day, right? That was, that was the thing everybody was doing. And I, I learned in there that Rosh Hashanah was not on the first day of the first month. It was on the first day of the seventh month of the biblical calendar. And I come home that, quote, Rosh Hashanah, and I am uh, at my uncle's house and we're celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and I tell my uncle, who was the acting rabbi of the community at the time, and I say, I just learned that this isn't even the first day of the first month, and we're calling it Rosh Hashanah. And I was like, I was like, how is this even possible? And he kind of looks at me and he smiles and he says, that's because in the Torah, there's no such thing called Rosh Hashanah. This day is called Yom Teruah, the day of Teruah. It could mean blowing a shofar. It could mean elevating your voice in prayer. Uh, and I was just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And from that moment on, I actually spent a lot of time devoting myself to understanding these, the holidays and differences in the calendar. So maybe I can give you just a few quick examples. It is definitely the case that over time, Jewish movements and the people who follow Judaism, they had divergent views and conversion views and divergent views and convergent views. So it's definitely the case over time that the Karaites, being a minority within the Jewish community, started adopting some of the terminology of the majority so absolutely, you hear people talking about Rosh Hashanah when they really want to talk about Yom Teruah. That happens. Even Karaites who, because of the state of the community, which is, you know, not as strong as it was a thousand years ago, don't really understand. Like I didn't understand that it was the first day of the seventh month. So when you say Rosh Hashanah, you could, hey, Happy New Year. Uh, that's great. Woohoo. But it's like the first day of the seventh month. And you're like, Wait, what? That's not a New Year's party. That's not, that, what, what are you doing here? Uh, so you talked about like celebrating holidays on different days. There are two ways that can happen. One way that can happen is because in the rabbinic tradition today, uh, the rabbinic calendar is preset. 
there is a day where you could look up what day is going to be the start of the first month, <laughs> what day is going to be the start of the second month, what day is going to be the start of the seventh month. So historically, most Jewish communities, as far as I'm aware, believe that the new moon was a signal for the new month. And the carrots would actually go out and look at the new moon. And you can see based on astronomical evidence that when you actually go out and look at the new moon, it falls on a different day from the pre-calculated calendar. So that means that there are some times when carrots are celebrating holidays on different days. So we, we, we may all agree that Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, is on the first day of the seventh month, but we'll start to disagree about what day is the first day of the seventh month. Another way that you could have a holiday on a different day is we could just interpret the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, differently. So one example is Shavuot. For the Karaites, Shavuot is always on a Sunday. Always, always, always on a Sunday. Uh, and there's a lot of textual stuff we can get into for that, but it says, you know, on the morrow after the Sabbath, so we interpret that to be after Shabbat, you should start counting to Shavuot, which is the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. Now Shavuot, so morrow after the seventh Sabbath would be a Sunday. So the day after the seventh Sabbath, the day after the Shabbat would be a Sunday. That's Shavuot. In the rabbinic tradition, Shavuot is always on a fixed day. And if I recall correctly, it is on the 6th of Sivan. Whereas in the Karaites, it is not on a fixed calendar day, but it's always on a Sunday. All right, so now we've, we, we've done Shavuot. We've talked about like the new moon, Tisha B'Av. Oh my gosh. The 9th of Av for context. That's yeah, what it means. Yeah, 9th of Av, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the 9th of Av, thank you. So 9th of Av is a day when many people in the Jewish community acknowledge that there are a lot of calamities, including the destruction of the temples. Well, if you look at the Tanakh, we see that the days that are specifically referenced when calamities under, uh, underwent are the 7th of Av and the 10th of Av. So the Karaites, we observe the 7th of Av and the 10th of Av as days of calamity and not the 9th of Av, uh, at least historically. Now, for sure, when you look through some later Karaite books, you see things for the 9th of Av. That's a situation where we all agree something bad happened around this time. We follow the biblical precedent of following the 7th of Av and the 10th of Av as our peak morning days, morning with a U, days. And in the rabbinic tradition, it's the 9th of Av, which is the peak morning days, day, I should say. I want to understand it, see if I can like tease out a distinction here, because if I understand correctly that the Karaites don't believe in an oral law, meaning don't believe that God commanded an oral law. But when we think about something like Tisha B'Av, you know, it's, le it's less about God commanding it and more that something bad happened on a particular day and we decide together to memorialize it, right? There's no sort of problem in doing that, as opposed to, for example, the laws of keeping kosher, where the Torah might specifically say, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, and then the rabbis do all kinds of stuff with that and end up, you know, no no chicken uh, with cheese on it. So that's really a case where once you say that the oral law doesn't exist, then I, I would imagine that you say, well, then we really, for kosher, we're going to go much more closely to what it says in the Torah. Can you d make distinctions between, you know, things that are in the Torah, things that are in other parts of the Bible, things that are in a book like the book of the Maccabees that didn't make it into the Tanakh, into the Hebrew Bible, and then things that are like came later, and which of those things do, do Karaites accept because they're more like customs, and which do they sort of not accept because they purport to be law? Let's start with something as simple as milk and meat, right? 
We all agree that the Torah says, do not boil or see the kid in its mother's milk. Okay, so like, what does that mean, right? The Torah doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us specifically what, what happens if you do see the kid in its mother's milk. Is the violation just doing the boiling or is the violation eating the product of that, right? And so no matter where you are, even if you're a Karite, <laughs> you have to make some interpretation. And I want to make sure this is really clear to everybody. Karaites believe that every word of the entire Hebrew Bible is subject to interpretation. Every word. Sometimes that interpretation is a very literal interpretation. Sometimes that interpretation is metaphorical. But in all cases, what we are looking for is the plain meaning. So what is the plain meaning of some of these verses? So in this particular case, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Okay, there's a clear prohibition on that. Now, what about using the byproduct of that? Can I eat... The, we'll call it the baby goat, that I've boiled. The Torah doesn't say, but the Karaites believe you cannot, right? So if you can't do the first thing, you can't do the second thing, right? That's an interpretation, but the Torah doesn't say that. Uh, now you get into things like chicken and cheese. It seems to me, right, if you want to apply any extending principles, you should be able to, you should be able to eat chicken and cheese. And by and large, virtually every Karaite I've ever met historically <laughs> And even today, or ever read about historically, and even today, say you can have chicken and cheese. There's no problem with chicken parmesan because chicken do not produce milk. If you want to extend these principles, you shouldn't be able to have chicken and eggs, right? Because that's a very similar concept, right? Something that is the offspring or the thing that would have been an offspring of a chicken and, and you're eating it at the same time you eat a chicken, right? So that you could see how that would be an interpretation. Now, I, to be honest with you, I don't know of any historical character who said that, but that's actually the beauty of what Judaism quotes is, is that you can sit here and say, you know what? I read this verse about the goat in its mother's milk, and I'm also not going to eat chicken and eggs because to me, that's a very similar principle. So that, that's the milk and meat thing. I want to get to the piece you mentioned about metaphor versus literal, because I think that's very important. I, like, I think most people either have never heard the word Karaite, or if they have, they don't really know what it is. The second level people have sometimes heard what Karaite is, and I think have misconceptions about what Karaite is from a rabbinic perspective. Um, because look, we know this with any group. If the only people talking about a particular group are outsiders to that group, we're probably not going to have particularly accurate descriptions of that group. You talked about metaphor. Those second level people, I often hear from them that, ah, Karaites are the group of people who believe in the literal words of the Torah. That's sometimes true, but not always. And for that, I want to revisit what you brought up before with mezuzah and tefillin. Mezuzah being the little, uh, from a rabbinic perspective, mezuzah being a literal object that you put on the doorway to your house and also within your house in certain rooms that contains certain passages from the Bible. To fill in being from a rabbinic perspective to a set of sort of two objects bound together that go on your head and on your arms. Both of them tie to what we loosely call the Shema because it says there, ah, bind these words upon your hand or arm. And so that's understood from a rabbinic perspective, actually very literally in, through these tefillin that are wrapped around your arm. And with mezuzah, it says, bind these words on the doorway to your house. Um, and so there's a literal object put there. Karaites approach those differently, and I'd love for you to say why. Yeah, great. So I would say that there are four passages in the Torah 
that serve the rabbinic understanding of tefillin. And there two are from Exodus, and two of them are from Deuteronomy. The two in Exodus say, and I'm just going to use a general English translation here, and it shall be for you a sign upon your hand, and a the first verse says, and a remembrance, zikharon, between your eyes. So that doesn't say the traditional word that people are expecting. The traditional word that people are expecting for the tefillin verses is totafot. Totafot is usually what gets translated as frontlets or tefillin. But Exodus 39 doesn't actually even have a commandment. It says, and it shall be for you. It doesn't say tie anything. It doesn't say bind anything. Same thing with Exodus 13, 16. It says, and it shall be for you a sign upon your hand and a remembrance. I'm using the word remembrance. But the word there is totafot. So maybe and frontlets between your eyes. So when you read these two verses together, Exodus 13.9 and Exodus 13.16, the Karaites look at it and say, wow, we've got these same verses. One says, remembrance, zikaron, and one says, totafot, which we could translate as uh, frontlets right now. Well, is this frontlet supposed to be literal or is it supposed to be figurative? And Karaites say that it's supposed to be figurative. So the Torah shall be for you as if it were constantly between your eyes, you know, constantly guiding your way, constantly on your mind, you know, all these different you know, analogies that you can come up with. And the, the verses in Deuteronomy also use the word totafot. But those verses there specifically say, you shall tie, right? And you shall tie them for a sign upon your hand in Deuteronomy 6, 8. And in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, and you shall tie them for a sign upon your hand. And those both say, and they will be for a totafot between your eyes. And so in three of the verses, it says totafot. In one of the verses, it says zikron. And nobody really knows, and I use this term loosely, what exactly is totafot? Because there's tons of debates within even the rabbinic literature about the etymology of totafot. So Karaites look at these verses together and say, this is a, all a metaphor. And the metaphor is that the Torah should always be with you in everything you do and guiding your way. And it should be a remembrance for you. Remind, remember the Torah. Okay, so in these verses in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall tie, right? So people often come to me and say, Sean, that means physically tie, literally tie. How can Karaites ignore this word tie? Well, I would say that the word tie can be either figurative or literal. There's nothing that says it has to be literal. So that word ukshartam could also be a metaphorical tying. In fact, earlier there's a, there's a verse that says that Jacob's soul is tied up with one of his sons and it uses the word, the same verb, ukshartam, or the same root of the, the word that we see in ukshartam. And so we see that this same word can have a metaphorical meaning elsewhere. So that's the fill-in. Let's, let's talk about mezuzot, right? Take these words which I command you, they shall be upon your heart and they shall be impressed upon your heart in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. But we see elsewhere in the Tanakh, it says, tie these things upon your heart in, the, in Proverbs 6. Write them upon the tablet of your heart, Proverbs 3.3. 3. So even things like write or tie can have a metaphorical meaning. So when it says you shall write- I'm not write, supposed to get a tattoo of the words on my heart? <laughs> you should try. Um, in fact, I was in, uh, I was traveling one time for work in, I don't know, Alabama or something, and I saw somebody had a tattoo that said Proverbs 3.3, 3, and I just wrote, write them up. I yelled out, write them on the tablet of your heart. And she turns around and goes, how do you know that? And I yelled, I'm a Karaite. She has no clue. I, mean, I assumed <laughs> that she was just confused. <laughs> so, uh, because I say that because when you're a Karaite, there are certain verses that you study over and over and over again because you're always confronted with this, aha, you Karaites are wrong because, because the writing the, the stuff on your doorpost, you can't literally write in a doorpost. You need this mezuzah. And I explain, okay, maybe, but let's look at what it means to write in the Torah and see if this is 
a metaphor at all. And so I happened to learn these verses uh, in context of, of these great Karaite and Rabbinite debates, but whenever I have a chance to, uh, to yell one out in, uh, in non-Karaite Rabbinite terms, I, I like to do that. When you're talking about the difference between Karaites and Rabbinites, it's not like Karaites just sort of mindlessly read the words in the Bible and just kind of try to get as close to it as possible. I mean, there was that book that came out by A.J. Jacobs called The Year of Living Biblically, and it kind of seemed more like it was sort of like that. It was like trying to read the Bible in some hyper-literalistic way. And that may or may not be what a Karaite would do, but it's not the point, right? The point is that there isn't a belief in an oral law that was given by God that either interprets or supplements the Bible. It's just that whatever interpretation you make of the meaning of the Bible comes from our own interpretive facilities as human beings, right? Or, or, or what? Or are there other principles that Karaites use to interpret the Bible in cases like the ones we're talking about or other cases that are kind of more like their Karaite traditions, there are ways that you are a right way to interpret something in the Bible and there's ways that are a wrong way in a Karaite perspective or, or how does that get done? I would say another one of the differences between uh, what people understand to be rabbinic Judaism and what people understand to be Karaite Judaism, at least at their core, is that generally, if you are following the Orthodox rabbinic tradition, and I'm going to pause here and just tell everybody, I, I want to apologize. I'm going to paint with broad brushes and I have painted the broad brushes about the Karaites and the Rabbinites and the Iswites and Mishwites. But uh, I think I'm doing it just to illustrate the points. Uh, generally, if you're following the Orthodox rabbinic tradition, you know, you believe that at some point there was a central law or a central governing body that gave you binding interpretations. And that would be the Sanhedrin, right? So the Karaites view is that after the close of the Bible and the fall of prophecy and the end of the standing of the Torah, that nobody had the ability to bind other people religiously. So what, what does that mean, right? So is there ever a correct way to interpret something as a Karaite? The short answer is I'm going to say no. The more nuanced, so meaning no, meaning we can all interpret it for ourselves. And I think that is the quote to the correct answer, but a more nuanced answer would be, yes, certain interpretations absolutely did make their way in as the mainstay, quote, correct Karaite interpretation. One of those would be Shavuot being on a Sunday. We, we touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, let me give you one example of like an intra-Karaite debate around the holiday of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Hag HaMatzot, or Passover, or Pesach, however you want to call it. So many of your listeners are familiar with the rabbinic debate about kidney oats. These are certain classes of, I guess, legumes. And whether you can eat these certain types of uh, items on the seven day or eight days of Passover. You know, generally speaking, Ashkenazi don't eat kidney oats and the other Sephardic Mizrahi do eat kidney oats. But Karaites, for the most part, never had that particular debate. We had a, a, a debate, intra-Karite debate, about what does it mean not to eat hametz, right? So the the Torah says for seven days, you shall not have hametz, which in this case, rabbinic Jews are interpreting to be leavening or uh, leavening of grains specifically. But Karaites, being Karaites, they looked throughout the entire Tanakh and they see that vinegar is called hometz yayin, fermented wine. So Karaites like, no, 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 hametz doesn't just mean leavening of grains. It means something like souring or fermentation. So the Karaites had a debate amongst themselves. Does 
chametz mean? Like, uh, what are we not allowed to eat? We're not allowed to eat grains, or are we not allowed to eat anything that's fermented? And some Karaites historically said, no, 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 it only applies to grains. And other Karaites said, no, it's anything that's fermented or soured, alcohol and yogurt um, and things like that. And today, most and of the- And wine, Karaites, which matters a lot, given what rabbinic Jews do with wine Oh yeah, and wine, I missed the obvious, and wine. So how many cups of wine do you have on Passover? Four, right? I have zero. I have zero cups of wine on Passover. So my point to say is like, even something that we take as fundamental of four cups of wine or four cups of wine or wine period, we don't do. You talked about how the Karaite understanding is that nobody post-prophecy can bind others religiously. And you used that phrasing. And first off, I want to flag, that's unbound framing. Nobody can bind others religiously. That's like a good thesis statement of Judaism unbound. And you also, before, were talking about how tefillin is not a literal binding on arms. So we've got two new unbounds that trace to Karaite roots, which is kind of where I want to go, right? Like, I don't think this conversation matters only because Karaite Judaism is rich and interesting and an approach to Judaism that I think matters. I do think all that. And I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand that, oh, there are different ways to count the days between Passover and Shavuot. There are different ways to approach what quote-unquote Rosh Hashanah or quote-unquote Yom Teruah are. There are like, from my perspective, all of that, like whatever my answers are, sometimes, by the way, I go with the Karaites. Like I count the Omer with the Karaites. I don't always tell people that because it's like some could interpret that like I'm just some needless rebel. But um, I think I'm convinced by that interpretation that Shavuot is supposed to be on a Sunday. Not that I really care what anything is supposed to be from my very unorthodox lens, but I do like that. So Karaite Judaism matters for all the reasons we've talked about in terms of its specific content. More than that, from my view, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Sean, it is for rabbinites, for people who didn't grow up with Karaite Judaism, it is such a beautiful tool in the toolbox when it comes to broadening how we understand Judaism. A basic goal of our podcast is to get people to say, oh, Judaism's ours. Like we have, we don't have to just go with whatever our parents did or our grandparents or our rabbis. Like it's ours. And we can understand our own role in this process as not just one of following others, but sort of shaping the material of Judaism itself. And the second you have sort of a Karaite consciousness, right? Oh, there are people who don't think those four cups of wine are required. That matters in and of itself, but it also means, oh, I'm going to approach my Passover Seder and I actually have to ask, huh, am I going to have wine or am I not? Am I going to have four cups? Am I going to have one cup? Like all of a sudden a new question opens up that wouldn't be there if you just accepted, ah, the rabbinic way is sort of the way and there's four cups of wine. It's not that I think that that's the most profound thing, right? Like there are other more profound questions to open beyond how many cups of wine belong at a meal for Passover. But like I want us all to be able to open up the Pandora's box of like, what is the way to approach Passover or that day in September or October that we call the new year sometimes or any of these other holidays? So like from your perspective as somebody who interacts a lot with people who are sort of learning about Karaite Judaism, like how can this be a tool for all of us to think more broadly about Jewish ways that have been sort of marginalized or erased over time? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I actually were talking, I don't know, maybe two, three years ago. And you said, you know, one of the things about charism that was fascinating to you is that once you understand that charism exists, then everything is on the table. And I think that's a really profound way to frame it. Everything is on the table. And at the same time, nothing is on the table. You get to start with a clear table and you get to choose what you're putting on it. And let me give you one example that I think most Jews take for granted. So when you ask most Jews, when does the day begin? They would say the day begins on the evening, right? So all Jewish holidays begin on the night before, right? That's what we, we kind of grew up saying, right? Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a group of people called the Mishawites who believed that Shabbat began on, the, on Saturday morning. Shabbat began on Saturday morning, not on Friday night. So what does that mean from a practical application perspective, right? So if the Mishawites are correct, and I'll leave that to everybody listening to determine whether the Mishawites are correct, but if the Mishawites are correct, all of the Friday night rituals we have about making sure, oh, we, in this case, rabbinic tradition, right? Making sure your Shabbat candles are lit on time. And all the Friday night debates where the Karaites said, hey, you can't even have flames on Friday night because Friday night is a Sabbath and you can't have flames carry over onto the Sabbath. All of those debates were pointless. If the Mishawites are correct, you could have, you could light Shabbat candles or you could light candles at any time you want on Friday night up until it becomes Saturday morning. So when I say that like everything is on the table, I also want to say that nothing is on the table. You get to set your table. Even I, as a Karaite, have to re-examine what are the things that I have you know, taken for granted from a Karaite perspective. I'll just be honest with you. I happen to think that the Mishawites are probably correct, that Shabbat, the day starts in the morning, so Shabbat starts in the morning. So all the things that we're like scurrying around and debating about, can we have fires on Friday night? And can the fire start to be lit before sunset and carry over into sunset. And that was a huge debate between the Karaites and the Rabbinites. It was a huge one. The Karaites said, absolutely not. You could never have a flame carry over onto the Shabbat. That's the, that was the very early Karait opinion. Later on, Karaites took a different opinion. Uh, all those debates are, were probably, in my opinion, erroneous. Now, do I go around? Because, you know, we talk about like, how do you live in a community? Do I go around and like, light fires on Shabbat on Friday night. No, I don't go around lighting fires on, on Friday night. And part of that is because even within me, who's willing to accept this totally divergence tradition as probably correct, I don't go around and, you know, uh, doing things that are different from how I grew up. So I'm willing to say everything's on the table and nothing is on the table. But when it comes to actual practice, I look, I'm in a community. I have community norms. I grew up a certain way. It's really hard to undo those things. Overall, I don't expect anybody to come away from listening to say, aha, the Karaites are right. I'm not going to have any wine on Passover. And like, I'm going to undo my entire tradition by, by not having wine on Passover or not having fermented foods on Passover. I don't expect that anybody to, but I am hopeful that people will be like, oh, wait, what was that thing that Sean said about the Mishawites on Saturday morning? Now, let me go look that up one day. Or what is that thing that Sean said about Yom Teruah not being the first day of the first month? And maybe a shofar isn't required. I'm going to go look that up too and see see what the carrots are saying about that, or what the Mishawites are saying about that. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of this conversation it reminds me of, and I I don't know that I remember the story exactly, but like there was some kind of story of uh, an American Jew talking to uh, some Israeli rabbi saying, you know, you want to have all these religious laws in Israel, but like most of the people in Israel are secular, and he's like, ah. They are secular Orthodox Jews, you know, like that. As, and so, like, I'm trying to sort of situate myself in this conversation. Like, you know, am I a, uh, you know, post 
Like, what am I trying to be? Like a, a post-rabbinic Jew, right? Like, I don't believe that the oral law is commanded by God either, right? But I also don't believe that the written law is commanded by God, but I'm interested in all of those. And so, like, for me, actually, you know, I do a lot of workshops on rethinking the holidays, for example, and I will raise a lot of the things that you're raising about, like, well, if you look at the Torah, these things are not as you learned them in Hebrew school. And on the one hand, that's kind of revelatory. On the other hand, it's sort of irrelevant because the reality is that rabbinic Judaism was a new Judaism. And anybody who grew up in a rabbinic tradition, which is most of us, has been told that they're practicing the religion of the Bible, but really they're not. They're practicing, or I guess most often not practicing, the religion of the Talmud. It really raises this question, which I don't necessarily think is your job, Sean, to uh, to resolve. But if you want to jump into it, I, although I think Lex and I will talk about it in a few weeks, is this question about like, what do those of us who are kind of post, you know, who kind of say, well, I love being Jewish. I want to remix the whole thing. I guess I'm asking two things. One is what are the Karaites, what is the Karaite community looking to achieve in the world these days? In other words, are you trying to uh, grow? Are you trying to just survive? Are you trying to have more acknowledgement within the Jewish community that Karaite is a legitimate form of Judaism? Like, And then my related complete, or completely different question is like, how can Karaites and Rabbinites, you know, get together to create something new together? Or is that not, you know, is that not of interest? Because for someone like you, you're trying to preserve this particular tradition, not necessarily hang out with people like me to build something new. <laughs> awesome. You know, one of the things I love about that is, yes, they're secular, but they're secular Orthodox Jews. The truth is that, you know, most Jews today, the synagogue they go to, no matter what denomination is, it's a rabbinic synagogue. And the truth is, the Jews who don't go to a synagogue, the synagogue they don't go to is also a rabbinic synagogue. That's the whole point, is that every framework that we look at, we're being told, is from a rabbinic lens, right? So you have to do this. You have to do that. It has to be done this way. Okay, that's great. It's wonderful. I have a profound respect for the rabbinic tradition. I taught at a Hebrew school, at a conservative Hebrew school while I was in college. But... When it comes to how we view the world, there are other things out there. So yes, but to touch on your other point, like what are Karaites trying to accomplish today? I would say that the Karaites in Israel really believe that if the situation does not change within a generation or two, or maybe three, there will be no organized Karait community. The situation has to change for Karait Judaism to survive in Israel, and they're doing everything they can to educate, uplift, empower hand the reins on to the younger generation, and preserve a historical form of Karai Judaism in Israel. And I think they have a fighting chance. Objectively speaking, in the United States, historical Karai Judaism will not exist after this generation. It, it just won't. The demographics are against us. The population is too dispersed. What can exist is a new form of American Karai Judaism. So, okay, so what does that mean? The Karaites liturgy that we have today was written by a Karaite sage about 800 years ago. I'm currently working on creating a traditional Arab Shabbat Karait Sidur. Once I'm done with that, I'm going to create a non-traditional Arab Shabbat Karait Sidur. Uh, maybe a renewal one, maybe a, a reform one, a reform Karait Sidur. Uh, but I think that those will, frankly, take more of a foothold in the United States than they will in Israel, at least in the short run. I want to really think through this question because I actually, I'm not somebody who identifies 
Like, if you ask me what kind of Jewish I am, I'm not going to answer with Karaite Jewish. But what I am going to answer with is I'm a Jew for whom encountering Karaite Judaism has, on a foundational level, made a huge difference in how I approach a lot of Jewish things. And I actually think that as much as you're totally right, Sean, that, like, I don't perceive after this generation, like, synagogues of people or like all that many individual people who will call themselves Karaite Jews. I'm really invested in the project. And you know this. I mean, you and I talk about this. I'm really invested in the project of having Karaite Judaism historically and, you know, more recently be seen as sort of one of the tools in the broad Jewish toolbox or one of the sources on the short, on the source sheet or like I, I think, and I think that's attainable. Like I think that in a digital world where people have more access to, to every kind of information, you can learn about Karaite stuff quicker. And I've even noticed in like Facebook groups that talk about Jewish stuff, like there seems to be more, like more people recognize the word Karaite and know like a little bit of what it is than did a few years ago. And so I, and I think that's non-trivial. And so I'm I'm sort of interested in flipping it on you because you and I have talked about like what the heck my Judaism is, right? Because I like, I count the Omer with the Karaites, right? And I even, I've had a year or two where on Rosh Hashanah for me, I do a bunch of shouting of deep, sincere prayer because I am convinced by that understanding of Teruah as not just shofar, but like loud, sincere shouting, basically, noise making. Would it be a success story from your perspective if in that generation or in a hundred years or in 500 years, there were not people who like call themselves Karaite, but there were lots of people for whom it is one corner of like their Jewish set of affiliations or one place on the source sheet that they include when it comes to those conversations about kidney oat or wine or whatever on Passover. Would that, is that a vision that inspires you or is it not? <laughs> Yeah. So the question, like, let's, so does it inspire me? Yes. And would it be a success story? Absolutely. Yes. Right. So, you know, you said something very interesting. You said, you know, I was moved by or taken by, convinced by uh, some, some of the Karite interpretations for Yom Tirah being shouting or noise making or things like that. If at the end of the day, everybody comes to the conclusion that, wow, there is a rabbinic interpretation here, but I also like what the Karites do here. And I'm going to, use some of the Karaites theology interpretation practice in my observance, I think that's beautiful. From a religious perspective, right, the goal from a purely religious perspective would be to bring people closer to the creator. And if this is a way that brings people closer to the creator, that's, that's wonderful. Now, from a cultural perspective and a, a perspective that Judaism is what people make it in every generation in time, that's also beautiful because people are going to be, oh, wow, I happen to heard, have heard that the Karaites don't do this. You know, this one Passover, just this one Passover, I'm going to do it without wine or fermented foods just to see what it was like and see if I enjoyed it. Or this one Passover, I'm going to put the Karaites sources in front of us so we can understand what some of these verses mean from a Karaite perspective. I'm going to still drink my wine and I'm going to drink four cups, but I'm going to learn what the Karaites are saying, right? So yeah, absolutely. That is a success story. So I don't, I'm not somebody that believes you have to have an organized, quote, synagogue going community uh, in order to be a successful Jewish movement. I think that there will be a post synagogue Jewish movement in the United States. There will have to be centers of learning, centers of culture, uh, because the human, I, I believe, human nature is that they want community and people want to interact with other people. What does that mean in a coronavirus world or a Zoom world? 
it might mean something just like this, right? It might mean something that, you know, uh, you know I, I tuned into part of your Shavuot learning, which by the way, was on the wrong day, guys, but I tuned into <laughs> some part of your Shavuot learning. And then you said something like, you know, Judaism may, a fundamental shift in how Americans at least perceive Judaism would be instead of Judaism being taught from parents to child, it could be taught from adults to adults, right? And that's what you're doing here. And that's a lot of the stuff that I do with my, my blog and, and the publication works I do and getting things accessible and the videos I put out. I'm teaching adults, you know? Yeah, could we uh, tease out a little bit more of that uh, future? I think by almost going, also going back to the past, because I'm, I'm thinking about people will say, but I mean, what would Judaism be like without synagogues? And what would Judaism be like without this and with that? And I, I kind of give them like a, a thought experiment where I say, imagine some proto-rabbi came to the Second Temple in like the 60s, you know, the, the year 60, not the 1960s, the actual 60s, and said, you know, I got this idea for a different kind of Judaism. You know, they basically describe rabbinic Judaism. They would be laughed out of the place. You know, they'd be like, that's not Judaism. So, but what I think that, uh, potentially understanding more about Karaites does is it it helps you understand that there can be Judaism without some of the elements that you are so sure have to be central to Judaism. So I'm curious about a few examples because, like, for example, it's interesting to me, a little surprising that there is such a thing as a Karaite synagogue because I kind of think of a synagogue as something post-biblical. And like, it's a little surprising to me that there's a Karaite Sidur because I think of prayers as something that's post-biblical. So can you explain a little bit more about how is a Karaite synagogue different from a Rabbinite synagogue? How are Karaite prayers different from Rabbinite prayers? And I think maybe there's also an opportunity here to talk a little bit about post-biblical or quasi-post-biblical holidays like Purim and Hanukkah, which I know that Karaites have some degree of of uh, celebrating them, but different from Rabbinites. So can you talk a little bit more about what the Karaite world has done post-Bible and what does it look like when Judaism travels a divergent path from Rabbinite Judaism, but not it doesn't just say stuck in one place forever, which is, I think, some people's wrong-headed idea of Karaite Judaism. Judaism didn't stop when the Bible was sealed, when the Tanakh was sealed. Like we, we, we all recognize that, right? So the question is, how are we going to relate to these words that are written down on a paper or in the rabbinical written on a paper and passed on orally from Sinai? How are we going to relate to that today? There is no doubt that the Karaites face a different set of challenges from rabbinic Judaism, right? So like, let's take of like, okay, how do we incorporate things that are non, truly non-biblical, like a synagogue? Okay, is it anti-biblical? No. Okay, is it seem to have a, a fundamentally nice purpose? Yes. Okay, let's throw it in. Who cares, right? Like, there's there's no problem with that. Now, you start uh, taking that too far, though, and you you have no Karaite movement. So, like, let me give you an example. We talked about tefillin. Okay, is tefillin in the Bible? Karaites would say no. Is it unbiblical? Uh, probably not unbiblical. Is there anything wrong with it? Probably not. Uh, okay, let's throw it in there, right? So when you start doing a whole bunch of that stuff, you will cease to be, exist as an independent movement. So the set of challenges that I have is like, okay, where can I draw the line of, quote, accepting non-biblical things? And in my particular case, accepting non-biblical things of a majority, right? Once you start adopting the practice of the majority, the minority starts to get whittled away. And I have to figure out where that line is, right? So you mentioned Purim, you mentioned Hanukkah. Purim is a holiday in the Bible. It's there. 
it's not one of the holidays that God commanded us, um, but it's there. And so the question is, is that a binding holiday? The Karaites of the Middle Ages did a whole bunch of mental gymnastics to say, yes, Purim is a binding holiday and has these obligations. And these are the obligations of Purim. Not commandments, right? Because commandments come from God, but these are obligations of Purim. If you go and ask the current chief hacham, Moshe Farouz, of the Karait community, and ask him, is Purim a binding or a non-binding holiday? He will tell you flat out, it is a non-binding holiday. There's nothing that you have to do for Purim. It's nice, it's beautiful, it's cultural. Yeah, let's read the Megillah, let's go you know, dress up and do all that stuff, but it's not a binding holiday. There's no like classical obligations in his sense, in the sense. Uh, so like even there where you have this shift from the Middle Ages or yes, there are obligations for him to today where the chief Acham will tell you, no, there are no obligations, right? Okay, that's an interesting example, but Purim is in the Bible, so it's an easy one for Karaites to wrestle over. Like, let's talk about Hanukkah. Uh, I gave a talk a few years ago to a synagogue via Zoom about Hanukkah, and the talk was called Hanukkah, why my ancestors never celebrated it, but my descendants probably will. I think I might even said I'm almost assuredly will. And the reason is because, you know, I have children, and my children see what goes on around them. Like, I don't live in a community of like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Karaites where I could be like, I can keep Hanukkah away from them or I can keep even Christmas away from them, right? And I have no intention of keeping Hanukkah or Christmas or, or things that go in the world, on in the world away from my children. Like, what's the point? You know, a few years ago, we were walking through San Francisco and my, my wife looks at me and she's like, Sean, we're celebrating Hanukkah this year. I said, well, we, we've never done it before. Why are we celebrating Hanukkah this year? My wife, who, by the way, does not come from the Karaite tradition, but has been wonderfully supportive. Uh, and she said, Sean, we have a three-year-old Jewish boy in San Francisco who is obsessed with Christmas. She's right. Once you realize that the, the battles you're fighting is like, okay, do I want a child who uh, is adopting the, the customs of the majority Christians in this case, or do I want a child who has an understanding of Hanukkah? I will choose Hanukkah, right? And that's what's going to happen in every Karaite family in the United States. Every family is going to happen. And so, yes, my grandkids and great-grandkids will be celebrating some form of Hanukkah. Will they be celebrating it in a orthodox religious sense of understanding you have to light at this time and you have to light? I, I don't know. That's up to them. But historically, Karaites didn't celebrate it because it was a non-biblical holiday. It happened after the Bible, right? Now that, and one of the reasons Karaites objected to it is not only was it a non-biblical holiday after the Bible, but in rabbinic tradition, there are, quotes obligations or commandments or things you have to do for Hanukkah, right? In a religious sense, Blessed Lord of God, King of the Universe, who, command, who made us hold the commandments to light the lamp of Hanukkah, right? The Hanukkah candle. Karaites don't believe that commandments ever happened, right? So why would a Karaites ever say that? So that's why Karaites historically didn't celebrate Hanukkah. But I've lost that battle. My grandkids, great-grandkids, they're, they're going to celebrate. And that's, and I look, I look online, right? Like people talk about Hanukkah being a minor Jewish holiday. It is the biggest Jewish holiday in the United States. Whether you go to a synagogue or don't go to synagogue, it is the biggest Jewish holiday in the United States. And if you say anything else, you're sticking your head in the sand. Just, I just look at my Facebook feed. Historical Karaites, non-observant uh, rabbinic Jews, non-observant Karaite Jews, all huddled around spinning dreidels and lighting menorahs, or Hanukkiot, and, uh, and eating jelly donuts and all that good stuff. I, I've lost, right? All the Karaites historically, we lost in that one. So congratulations, Rabbinites, you win. <laughs> <laughs> That's Okay, so that's amazing. I mean, I'm struck in how you're talking, especially with the Christmas example. I'm struck by what feels like how, in a sense, Karaites are the Jews of the Jews. Like, there's a sense in which what you describe as a Karaite making the choice between, am I going to fight really hard to keep my 
family's historic Karaite tradition, or am I going to go with the one that is more predominant in Jewish society, which is Hanukkah in this case? Like that question is so similar to I'm part of a group of 2% of the United States. The vast majority of this country is not part of that group. Um, do I do the things that just the broader predominant culture does or do I not? And that's like the defining question or maybe not the defining question. That's like one of the big questions that sort of defines how all the different movements go about their lives is like how they choose to answer that. How much of, you know, quote unquote, broader society is where their orientation is and how much of what they perceive to be like particularly Jewish traditions they keep. So I want to close this by kind of saying from my perspective, the imperative I feel towards Karaite Judaism, but also to all sorts of marginalized small groups of Jews. Because if I have a consciousness that like, oh, it would really suck if American society like lost any trace of Judaism or of Jewish culture, values, whatever we want to talk. Like, if I understand that, and I think that even though we're a tiny minority of American society, it would be a mistake to write off that small percentage. I must then apply that Jewishly. I must then say, oh, it doesn't matter that Karaites are a small percentage of Jewish populations. We're not going to just sort of cherish things based on the percentage that they make up of our populations. We're going to say, oh, those Karaite teachings we're going to fight for those, even though they're not mine. Like, even though it's, it's not my genealogical history in the way that it is for you, like, I'm going to recognize that importance. And then, and this is the kicker, I'm going to apply that to as many groups as I can conceptualize who have also been marginalized. What are the holidays that are not Karaite holidays that have been marginalized? I think of SIGD. I think of Jews of color, black Jews who celebrate that holiday, SIGD, in in Cheshvan, a holiday, uh, a month that is often talked about as having no holidays and one of the most blatant acts of erasure that I can think of Jewishly. I think of the ways that feminism has taught over and over that, ah, just as we have that, you know, white Jewish default or rabbinite Jewish default, we have a male Jewish default and we have to recognize all the ways in which women, like, I want us to own that this particular battle, and I do think it's kind of a battle, this particular battle of like finding ways to cherish Karaite traditions, which at one point, by the way, we're like, I don't know what the numbers are, like a third of Jews in the year a thousand or something were like actually were Karaite. It's not some tiny, it wasn't historically a tiny group. Like it brings upon us a variety of imperatives. And so I want to close by A, asking practically, how can people actually like learn more about Karaite Jews. And second, what would you add to that imperative? Yeah. Practically, what, where can people go to learn more? How can people learn more? I have a blog, abluethread.com, abluethread.com. Uh, everything there is just kind of whimsical stuff that are just my observations about Karaite rabbinite relations uh, and historical Karaite practices, some of which will never be here again. And there's also a, a website called The Karaite press.com. And you can actually buy books written by historical Karaites uh, that have been translated into English, right? I have a strong policy there of not just translating, but virtually every book has detailed annotations to explain to people what's going on here. There's a book there called Royal Attire, or in Hebrew, Levush Malchut, Royal Attire. And uh, the middle third of that book goes through the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, 
and takes all the major commandments and talks about the differences between the Karaites and the Rabbinites, at least from the perspective of this late 1600s Karaite living in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, but we annotated the whole thing with footnotes and endnotes so you can get more color and more background. So that's where you can go to learn, uh, fighting the fights to make sure that marginalized Jewish voices, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned historically black Jews, currently black Jews. Yeah, absolutely. Everything we can do to get marginalized Jewish literature, both historic, present, and future on that. Remember I said like there's nothing on the table or everything on the table. We need to start thinking about what piece of those we can put on our own table so we can understand that there is more than one way to look at something. And I, I educate my own community about that every year. Every year at Passover time, I take the opportunity to educate them on some of the traditions of the historical Ethiopian Jewish community and what they ate and didn't eat on Passover. Because I find it fascinating that there's this culture and theology and religious belief and community that was not so far from my family in Egypt, in Ethiopia they were, and they had interpretations that were similar. And if we do not do the work to understand marginalized Jewish groups, we will have a worse understanding of ourselves and we will also have a worse understanding of what Judaism is. That's why you have to fight the fight. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, my pleasure being here. Long-time listener, first-time speaker. Hope to do it again. Before we go, we do want to say thanks, of course, to all of you out there listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll keep journeying through this unit of episodes on the Bible with us. And uh, we want to encourage you to be in touch with us if you're enjoying these episodes, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, etc., etc. We love all of that, and here are all the ways that you can be in touch with us. First, there are our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All of those handles are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And third, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also appreciate if you're able to set aside a financial donation for us, which you can do at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or as a one-time gift. Before we go, we also wanted to say thank you to one of our sponsors, Support for this episode comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been... Judaism Unbound.